time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. On 1050 Bascom, we are excited for the opportunity to interview David Greenwood Sanchez, a PhD candidate in the political science department. David is teaching a new seminar this spring called Environmental Policies and Indigeneity. Yes, I had to look that up to pronounce it. Indigeneity in the 21st century. We will ask David about this fascinating course, as well as his research and community-based projects that inform his teaching. So to kick us off, thank you so much, by the way, for being with us today. It's great that we could all sit down and talk. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. And since this is the first time we've had you on the podcast, we'd love to start with a little bit about you and your background. We're curious about what set you on the pathway towards becoming a PhD student in political science and studying environmental politics in a comparative context. Now, We'd love if you'd share a little bit with us about your academic and professional narrative, maybe beginning with your BA in economics at Whitman College. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I'm from Minnesota and I went out to a place, Whitman College, which is a small liberal arts college in Walla Walla, Washington. And the idea was really to get as far away from the Midwest as I could to start out. But um, I had a great time there. And I studied economics. I majored in econ and got a minor in, in politics. And at the time, I really wanted to really to understand global events. I'm, I'm half Peruvian. My mom is from Peru. And I always had an inkling of you know, what's going on. How, how do I make sense of Peru and things that are taking place there? And so I took all the econ classes I could. And I remember my advisors at some point telling me, like, you know, you should consider going on to a, to a grad program of some kind. And so I was pursuing that route for a while and actually took a ton of math classes as well. At some point, well, actually after undergrad, I went to a summer econ program. And the idea was for aspiring PhD students or potential PhD students in the future for econ programs to get a sense of what's going on. And so you work with economists and with other scholars and see how you like it. And in my case, I didn't like it. <laughs> it was kind of one of those situations where, you know, you'd, you'd grown accustomed to taking undergrad classes and they're great. But then when you move on to the type of research and engagement that takes place in a graduate econ coursework or class, that is really, it's different. And so it's very math-based, very different from what I had hoped for. And so it was actually a really good experience because I learned that, hey, this isn't what I want to do. I want to do something different. So I went back to Minnesota and it was the time of the great recession. I think the recession just hit. And so for all of us, I was a, a graduate, I graduated in 2008. For all of us, like, it was really tough to get a job. No one was hiring at that moment. And so I spent a year um, doing an unpaid internship, uh, doing odd jobs and kind of thinking about like, you know, what is it that I, what is it that I'm going to do? And I, I had the idea at one point to go ahead and to apply for a few graduate programs, uh, master's degrees. And I, they were kind of just like, it was a shotgun approach. I really just thought like, you know, either I stay here and I continue doing this unpaid internship and not making money and struggling, or I can go back to school. So I did that. 
and I got I got lucky basically I got I had a, a scholarship to the University of Minnesota to the Humphrey School of Public Affairs so they it's a policy school and so they have a two-year MPP degree so that's a master of public policy um, and so I was able to to get in there and I, I, you know, it wasn't exactly you know something that had occurred to me like before like you know I want to be a, a, a MPP or you know something that kind of just happened and it turned out to be an absolutely fantastic experience for me because I was able to use two years to go ahead and take a ton of advanced classes across departments throughout throughout the university um, and the public policy program uh, they're pretty open generally and so it's a very um, I don't want to say like nebulous concept but just in terms of coursework you're able to take classes all over so I did that for two years and then after that I um, let's see I was able to get a job in Chile. So again, I had my background originally was in economics. And so I'd still taken a lot of econ courses and along with courses in development and human rights um, in Latin America. And I got a job with a place called Poverty Action Lab. Sometimes they're known as JPAL. And so they work on issues of, well, evaluation. So it's evaluating development programs using a very particular method, which is randomized evaluation. So I was able to work with them for about a year and a half, almost two years. And that brought me back into that kind of that academic world, working alongside PhD economists, other people who are, well, working on all types of evaluation, all types of interesting research questions. It was a, a fantastic experience. I came back after that to Minnesota to, um, to live with a girlfriend and to, uh, to, to work and kind of reconsider things. And I used that year when I worked with the state of Minnesota to think about applying for a PhD program. And so I ended up doing that for political science. i sorry, I had a little bit of a follow-up that I, I thought was interesting that you mentioned that your professors had been like, hey, you want to go to get over here? You want to go to grad school, kid? And then you eventually, like down the road, you know, made that decision a second time, like while you're at your internship. Like, did you have like ideas beforehand that you wanted to go to grad school or was it like influence over time pushed you to that? Yeah, it was a mix of everything because in, in my mind, well, so first of all, as an undergrad, I had never really considered graduate school directly you know that wasn't I was just thinking you know let's I, I want to finish here and I want to get a job and, and do my thing at that point I had some advisors who were saying well if you want to go on to grad school in the future you should take this class and this class and this class and prepare yourself in this way and then as I had mentioned like I kind of went down that route and it didn't it wasn't perfect for me and so then I kind of shelved the idea and said well I'm going to do something else I'll, I'll work I'll do my thing and then in the process of going back to uh, this master's program, it was there where I was doing some, some research in, in Peru through an internship, engaging with a lot of new ideas that I hadn't gotten the first time around. So as an undergrad, I hadn't worked so closely in issues of, for example, human rights, environmental rights, indigenous rights, things like that. But in an internship that I had done in Peru, I was able to get a, a really good experience working on, on some of those issues. And so that gave me a new insight and made me think like, hey, you know, maybe you can do grad school in a, in a way that's more your own. Maybe you can find a PhD program or some type of program that allows you to look at these issues in, in more depth. And so that's kind of how I ended up finding uh, political science, really, because political science is, it's really cool in the sense that you can mix everything. And that's in terms of methods, in terms of substance, in terms of uh, area. And so you have a lot of, a lot of leeway. So for someone like myself, who I've kind of, I have a lot of different interests and I'm bouncing around all over the place. It, you know, it became really the perfect discipline for me because you do have access to all of those different tools and all of those different perspectives. But yeah, it wasn't, 
as far as the decision to to go on to grad school, I, uh, no, that wasn't something that I had been born with or that I had been, you know, I had come up with the idea like I, I'm dying to be a PhD in political science. I've, I've never really had that push. No. Very cool. I totally relate to the multidisciplinary approach in political science. That's how I landed here too. So you mentioned too that Madison, well, is really great with that because I have some other friends who are in other programs around other schools around the country. And sometimes depending on what your department is, you can get pushed to do a certain type of research or to adopt a certain approach. And at Madison, it, it, well, at least in my case, it's never felt like that. I mean, you're trained and you're encouraged to use like rigorous methods and do things um, in good ways, but you're not forced into a particular category of work, which is an awesome thing. Definitely. You touched on a little bit before some of those positions outside of academia that you held after your undergrad, which included working as a research intern in Peru for the Association of Nature and Sustainable Development and a research analyst in Chile and a program evaluator at the state of Minnesota. So Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about those experiences and were they important in kind of shaping your path? Hey, those experiences are really great. I think no matter what, getting experiences abroad in particular are really, it's really useful for kind of having those in your, in your back pocket. So as a student and, and really scholar in in political science, whenever I'm confronted with a new idea, a new argument, I can look back and reflect on those moments and say, you know, does this jive? Is this in accordance with what I know from my time in, in Peru, from my time in Chile, or from my time including in the state of Minnesota? So yeah, so I'm a fan of that. But in terms of how important those are, I think the one that you had mentioned, the Association for Nature and Sustainable Development, so that's Andes, and it's an NGO that's based in Cusco, Peru. And they work in a supportive role for an association of indigenous communities. So there are five indigenous communities that together manage an area called the Potato Park. So they have some 1300 varieties of native Peruvian potatoes. It's a really uh, a really unique program and project and association. I mean, there really isn't another potato park like it in the world. I don't know if there's a, another potato park even, but I, I came across that because as an undergrad, I had taken a class, a politics class called Cultural Politics of Development in Latin America. And as part of it, we had to come up with a final research project. And in the final research project, me being half Peruvian, I'm always looking for, at least at that time, I'd always been trying to find a way to connect my research to Peru. So I go and I started Googling and I came about it in the news. I found, out, oh, hey, there are these potato farmers who are banding together and who are trying to protect potato varieties. And on top of it, they're trying to engage in a, a, what was called a potato repatriation project to repatriate. And I think now we use the term rematriate, but repatriate or bring back potatoes that had been lost that were now being stored in a gene bank in Lima and to bring those back to their communities and to regain the rights associated with them. So I thought, man, that's pretty fascinating. Like I want to do something with that. So I wrote a paper on it. And then afterwards, when I went back to grad school at the Humphrey School for Public Policy, I had an internship opportunity between my first and second year, and I was able to get a grant to do, to do some research overseas. And I reached out to the program director of this organization. He said, yeah, you know, you can come here and we might have a project for you evaluating how well that repatriation project has worked. And so I was able to, to go ahead and get some really great experience firsthand working with 
Um, well, first of all, I mean, kind of some office work. I work mostly on the office side of things. But then secondly, to work and to actually go out into the field and speak with community members to see different things about, you know, what's the meaning of a potato in a, in a different context in the Andes? What are some of the maybe spiritual values that are connected with this or some of the ways that this, you know, is part of someone's identity? Those are really like unique kind of questions and experiences that uh, I have a harder time getting and, and seeing sometimes in in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I'm from. So for me, that type of experience has been really useful as uh, both for like changing my mindset. And then secondly, that particular area, the Potato Park, now it's gotten a, a bit of a, a reputation in academic journals and different uh, literatures because it is such a unique place. And so when I mentioned to people that I've had some work experience there, A, it's, you know, it's something that people are just curious about because it's an interesting place, but then also it's something that um, might, maybe it gives me a leg up or you know, an ability to, to talk about something, to, to connect and to think about something or promote a new idea that otherwise I might, I, maybe I wouldn't have. So yeah, so those, those experiences are, are really great. And the other one uh, in Chile with JPEL, again, JPEL is a really an interesting organization. It's really a network of economists. And that was also a great experience because I, I worked there with, I would say my role was more as, a, as like a, almost like a programmer. I did a lot of statistics work and it was pretty hardcore. Um, and so you're doing coding for most of the day, but you're also doing a ton of outreach. You're connecting with organizations, making sure that the projects are running correctly, that you're collecting the data in the right way. You have to also develop survey questionnaires. You have to run them by work with PIs to make sure that they're done correctly, read lit reviews, write, um, I don't know, write papers. So you're doing a bit of everything and you're also doing it, in my case, in a different language. So for me, it was a great experience uh, beyond just the experience itself, but at a personal level to gain the confidence that, hey, I can do a lot of things. And so if you throw something at me, I can, I can find a way to make it work because a lot of those were new experiences to me. I think it's wild. I was joking about this the other day that it'd be really stupid if there was a second potato famine. But the concept that there has been probably lots of small potatoes, like issues and potatoes lost over the years never occurred to me. That's all of your experience is super interesting, I guess. Yeah, and kind of with that too, you know, that's still really relevant. Now, fortunately for potatoes, you know, there are over 4,000, there's like four to 5,000 different potato varieties in the world. That's so many. Isn't that really incredible? Yeah, and in general, when you go to when you go to a, you know, a store and you're looking to buy potatoes, how many potato varieties are you able to look at? You might see like four or five or maybe six different varieties. And so it is a case where like, yeah, where you see how there are these different pressures to you know, produce potatoes as abundantly and as cheaply as possible. And that over time, that might lead you to have a type of monocrop or to really base your potato production on just a few varieties. We've seen what happened in Ireland with potato famine. Um, and fortunately, though, there are a lot of people now who, who have, you know, changed their mentality and who I think understand like, hey, we can't have that happen any longer. So even if we are going to produce five or six potato varieties really abundantly and really at a massive scale. There's still a lot of other people who are hobby farmers, who are potato enthusiasts like myself, who grow potatoes in their backyard or wherever they can. I have some 25 potato varieties that I grow and they're different colors, different textures, different shapes, different sizes. And that's awesome. And, and there are actually communities of people who are doing that across the country. There's a really cool organization and in Iowa and Decorah Seed Savers, they work on that, trying to 
help promote heirloom varieties of all types of crops. So there's a really cool movement that pushes back against that and tries to ensure that we don't have another potato famine-like event in the future. That's awesome. I know seed savers really well because my dad is an avid uh, hobby gardener, but that's so interesting. I'm just curious as kind of a follow-up, do you think that there's for people who are interested in finding international experiences or research abroad, do you think that there's a disproportionate cost or benefit to doing an abroad experience as compared to just doing research within the U.S.? In my opinion, you get a little more out of doing it abroad in the sense that you gain a, a perspective that you might not get working in the in the United States. And I feel like you know, if you guys are from the US, then you all you always have that ability to, to work in the US, but maybe the opportunity to, to work abroad or to do a study abroad uh, opportunity, something like that. Sometimes those, you know, they, those opportunities come and go. And so it's in my view, it's better to take advantage of those now while you're in school, while you have some access to funding opportunities, for example, grants or small um, things that come through the university, because a lot of times those are harder to get. Like I, I, if, if you want to go, for example, and do research in the potato park in Peru, like it's hard to imagine like how you do that outside of an academic context. And so in, in my view, there's a, a big benefit to doing some of that type of research early on and to getting that in your back pocket. And it's, it, it's not, you know, especially clear to how, you know, what doors that type of research opens, but I'm pretty confident that all experience uh, abroad is good experience. So I would go, that would be my, my intuition there. Completely understandable. Take it while you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take one last poke at your resume before we move on a little bit, but we noticed that you were in AmeriCorps in Nevada uh, for a summer. Now we have a lot of students who are interested in those kinds of opportunities to wonder, you know, what kind of experiences they can gain from it. Uh, is it worth it? Um, and we were just wondering like, what's your take on it? Yeah. So my, my AmeriCorps experience was with the Nevada Conservation Corps, the NCC. And again, I had done it in 2009. So this was a, you know, a full decade ago. And it was also in the context of the, the Great Recession. So for me, it worked perfectly because it gave me a little bit of an escape, a chance to an opportunity to do something really interesting, something that, I, that had interested me. Uh, it was a chance to, to explore the West. Again, I'm from Minnesota, so I hadn't had a lot of opportunities to go out to a place like Nevada. I think it was actually the first time I'd been there. And in my case, Again, and I'm, I'm speaking from, from the perspective of someone who worked with one organization, and I know AmeriCorps is really big, and so there are a lot of you know, varied experiences depending on where you get placed, um, who you work with, and what exactly you're doing. But I can speak to the idea of working on a, a conservation crew, and for me, it was incredible. I had done it for just a summer, so it was three months uh, where I worked in Great Basin National Park, which is kind of middle of nowhere, eastern Nevada, and... Um, it's a fantastic park. It doesn't get a lot of visitors um, because of where it's located, uh, but it makes it all that much more cool. It was, it was such a great experience, and I was able to actually work with some friends there. Um, we hung out a lot at a, a small town called Baker, Nevada, which was at the time was population 72. So it was a small place with a different style of a different lifestyle, different people living there. And so it was a good, uh, good way to get insight into a, you know, a, different, a different style of life there. And also a good way to, to spend a summer 
to make a little bit of money too. You don't spend any money when you're doing that type of job on conservation crew and to stay physically active and to learn about a different part of the country. So yeah, I loved it. And I would, I mean, I can attest to, again, to conservation work and I thought it was fantastic. So I would definitely encourage people to look into that. It's a, it's a good option. And I think too, for people who do it for a full year, uh, I think there are some other benefits that come out of it. Like you get a type of um, maybe a student loan reduction afterwards or some type of credits that are given some educational awards, some different opportunities that come out of it. So I definitely encourage it. I had a great time. Awesome. We'll stop poking at your resume for now, but you just have so many cool experiences. We got to at least touch on some of those. (laughs) So we're going to transition now to talking about an exciting new course that you're teaching this spring called Environmental Politics and Indigeneity in the 21st Century. So let's get into some of those objectives for the course first. We know that there's a lot of student interest already. Could you help us understand the connection that you're making in the course between environmental politics and indigenous politics? So I'd been asked by the department to teach a class, a new seminar on environmental politics. Of course, I said, yeah, that sounds great. Um, That's right up my alley. That's something that I'm interested in doing. Absolutely. But as I kind of reflected on it and thought, how am I going to put this class together? It occurred to me, too, that it doesn't make much sense in my mind to only teach a class on environmental politics. Really, when we're looking at environmental issues, we are also looking inherently at indigenous issues. So when we talk about indigeneity, we're also talking about people and culturally distinct groups of people who have a a type of tie or an ancestral bond or connection to the land, right? And when we look at environmental problems, and this is kind of one of the first things that we'll cover in the class, but the environment, depending on how you conceptualize it, and there are a lot of different ways, but the environment is kind of unbounded. It's everywhere. It belongs to, you know, to everyone, but also to no one. And when we look at environmental problems, they kind of, they're they're tricky. They leak everywhere. And they affect certain groups of people more than others. This is part of what's come out of kind of an environmental justice paradigm recently. And one of the groups that's most effective, indigenous communities. Um, We have, when I think of people, my friends, my uh, co-workers in the potato park, people in mountainous areas, very much affected. They're the ones who are feeling the, the effects of climate change most immediately and who we know who are being displaced already. Small island nations who are, you know, won't exist in in the near future, things like that. And so when you look at, when you reflect on it and you see that we have indigenous communities that indigenous territories that hold 80% of the world's biodiversity, for example, you start to see and you say, hey, well, these environmental problems, they're not just problems that we can look at in isolation, but we, instead we need to, you know, we need to craft a new way of looking at them that also incorporates indigenous communities and other ways of understanding these problems. And I'll also add that I have, I've taken a few environmental politics courses in the past, including as an undergrad. And usually when you take them, there's kind of a, a standard way of doing it, a standard operating procedure, which is first you learn what's the nature of environmental problems? How do these work? And you always go back to the tragedy of the commons, right? We have these kind of these common resources that are exploited. And then you move on. And this is how I swear, almost all the politics courses are structured around this, but you move on to then what are the solutions? So we can model all of these different environmental problems like climate change, like pollution and others. We can model them as tragedies of the commons. And then we can uncover particular solutions in response to that particular problem. But in most of those, 
you just you kind of ignore the role of indigenous communities. You ignore the fact that some people are potentially tied to that land or tied to that resource in ways that we don't consider. And so what happens if you hold an ancestral tie to, to the land? What happens if you believe that, I don't know, in Mexico, for example, where I have been studying, there's a cosmovision, a kind of an origin story that says that people are children of corn. And so corn has this kind of sacred relationship or this sacred character. So what happens if you start pursuing a, you know, policies that potentially remove corn from the countryside or that genetically modify corn or that do things that, you know, that change that. And so these are issues that in our modern world in the 21st century, we have to start considering. So there's been a shift in some of the ways that we think about environmental politics. And I wanted to make sure that in this class that we look at those. We've looked at quite a few areas of study in this class, but do you have any personal favorite areas of the course you have planned, uh, topics that are particularly exciting to you? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking I have two, I think two units that are going to be my, my favorite ones. So the first one is really right at the start. It's looking at the question of what is the environment? What is nature? What is environmental politics? And so we start looking at really social constructions and the way that we conceptualize these, these categories and what we're trying to include within them. And I think the especially cool part in this class is that we also start to tie that with uh, indigenous politics or indigenous conceptualizations of what is nature, what is the environment. And so we start thinking about what does it mean to incorporate within our environmental politics, things like rivers or mountains or sacred landscapes. And there's a new academic literature on that. A lot of it comes out of anthropology, but it's really, really fascinating. And they're politically in kind of the real world, there's a, a real world movement that's giving rights to nature. Um, and we can see some of that in Ecuador, we can see it in New Zealand, we can see it in different parts of the world. So I think that's a really cool part of the class that I'm really excited for. The other one that I, that I really like, it's a little bit nerdy and it's down in, into the weeds, but it's on kind of the bureaucratic politics of the environment. And so when we look at some, we have a unit on like risk assessment and, you know, when people are analyzing the risks of a new technology, for example, how is it that they make those, those assessments? How is it, that, you know, who, is, who are the experts in these questions? Why is it that we trust them? And then with environmental issues, there's kind of this, this problem that comes up periodically, which is, you know, there are a lot of different experts from a lot of different fields who are analyzing a new technology or a problem according to their own disciplinary perspective and so you have a case where you have different kind of scientific answers. So we have kind of different sciences that are producing contradictory information or results. And that ends up kind of producing a lot of interesting questions for, for me about, you know, what are the limits to what we understand about something like nature or the environment and how capable are we of, of making good decisions given this context of just being in a really complex and, and interesting world. So those are my two favorites. Awesome. That course sounds so cool. That was a great tease for all of our listeners and for me. I want to take it now. <laughs> you should. Um, let's move into some of your other research interests because we've already hit on potatoes. Potatoes sound super fascinating and great, but you've also studied the politics of genetically modified crops in Mexico and Peru. So what are the politics of genetically modified crops? In general, around the world, most countries have to make a decision with respect to GMOs, right? So it's a new 
a new technology, relatively new technology that um, modifies crops and gives them different characteristics that they otherwise would, you know, wouldn't have. And so they're faced with the decision. Do we say yes or do we say no? Do we allow them to grow in our country or do we reject them? And that's kind of the, the basis for the, the politics. The other part is that in this particular issue, you have some of the strongest and most powerful interest groups that you can encounter within any type of political question. And so we have seed companies and so they can devote millions and millions of dollars into some of these questions and campaigns. Within that context, especially combining that within a developing country context, you end up with, well, how is it that countries ever are able to you know, resist this temptation or this, this pressure to adopt GMOs? How is it that you know, small countries like Peru, for example, which is one of the countries that I study, they adopted a, a moratorium, a ban on GMOs until 2035. So my interest is, you know, where does that come from? What are the politics within Peru that allow for uh, this type of political outcome? Fascinating. Is that specific to countries like Mexico and Peru, or is there a push for genetically modified crops also in the U.S. that has the same sort of political nature? Well, yeah. Well, in, in the U.S., it's a little bit different because most of the technology that created GMOs comes out of U.S. companies. And so in the United States, really a lot of those key, key moments, or key defining moments for the yes or no question, those came about really in the, the late 80s and the early 90s. And so you can think of it as in we're already like structured along this path of being a, a pro-GMO country. So really the politics in the U.S., they're not so much around kind of that earlier question of yes or no, but it's really, uh, you know, a different set of politics around questions of GMO labeling, for example, on packages. Do we say this product contains a GMO ingredient or do we say this product contains bioengineered ingredients and where do we place that exactly on the package? Do you need a QR code for that? Or is it something that is going to, you know, how, what are the, what's the precise language that will spell that out? And so the politics in the U.S. are a little bit different, but in around the world and other countries that are not quite at that stage, uh, we can look at this, this question of GMO adoption. And in Mexico and in Peru, the question is a little bit different because both countries are mega diverse. So, and they're also center of origin countries for crops that are really important. So in Mexico, Mexico is the center of origin for, uh, for corn, most notably, but also for beans, for squash, for a lot of other crops. And Peru is the center of origin for potatoes, for a lot of really most of the world's tuber crops, and for a lot of other things. And so when you have these conditions, being centers of origin, being mega diverse countries, and then also the cultural component, when you have people like indigenous communities whose identities might be tied in some way or linked to those resources, you know, how does that change the, the type of politics that, that are played out? And so that's really the question that I look at in Mexico and Peru. So they might, that might not generalize, that might not really translate to every other country in the world because those are very particular conditions. But at the same time, they're interesting, interesting cases that might be able to tell us a thing or two about how these politics play out in other places. I was going to say, it's really interesting to think about, I don't know, obviously my experiences are going to be very like centric to the United States. You know, I grew up with my family planting like our backyard gardens because GMOs are scary. And then you grow up and you realize everything's kind of a GMO. And then you see like Monsanto. Am I saying that right? Monsanto? Yeah. And kind of 
all of that fear around it, but like still the acceptance that we can't really get rid of it in the United States and it's going to be there for forever versus, you know, other countries that are not doing, not doing it right now, not looking to expand into it, not looking to have that come to like their soil. It's kind of interesting to think about that, you know, in regards to national identity and like political science. It's a very interesting field of study. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that too, it's it's an interesting political question because also there are, you know, very tangible, very real ramifications for you and I and, you know, everyone. And so just the idea of like, yeah, for example, like in your own yard, on your land, like what, what are you going to garden? What are you able to grow? Um, what seeds are you going to use? Where are you going to get them? Are you going to keep them yourself? Are you going to be able to freely store them and exchange them with other people? Well, a lot of that's tied to some of these regulatory questions around, do we accept GMOs? Yes or no. And again, like some of those in the U.S., we don't consider so much because they've been, some of those have been made already. But at the same time, again, there's a, there's a good push of people who are still very much fighting uh, against pushing back on some of that and making sure that we still have a situation where we're able to freely grow our heirloom varieties of crops where we're able to save our seed and use it and reuse it every every year and really using kind of a presentation of of rights in order to make those those claims does this become an international relations issue as well like i would imagine seed companies using genetically modified seeds in the u.s would try to market that to other countries as well Yeah, it's definitely an international issue. And from the IR perspective, there's been some good work done on it. uh, Really what we're looking at is in poli-sci, we use the kind of a a jargony term called regime regime complex. And so we're looking at different, different international treaties that come from different areas that are all trying to get their say about how we govern our plant and genetic materials resources. And so you have within the World Trade Organization, you have a provisions on intellectual property. Um, from more of the environmental angle, you have the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Cartagena Protocol for Managing Genetic Resources. You also have the FAO. There's a, it's called the Plant Treaty. And then you also have another treaty that's plant breeders' rights called the UPOV Convention that's designed to make sure that people who invest their time in producing new types of new varieties of plants, that they're compensated appropriately. So you have these different treaties that come from like four different positions, four different values, and they all form a really like a patchwork of competing international laws. So it's from the IR perspective, it's really difficult to make sense of like, what is the direction that this goes in? It's it's very incomplete, contradictory, uh, certainly interesting, certainly fascinating, and there'll be stuff that happens there in the future. But for the moment, it's hard to make heads or tails of how this affects you at the, at the domestic level. That's such a web. Yeah, it's a web. <laughs> well said. It's a, it's a tricky web. As yeah, with anything, a- I guess. Yeah, and there's some issues too about, and sometimes in environmental problems, sometimes they categorize certain problems as being wicked ones where it's so, the web is so complex, the sciences that inform this web are also so kind of contradictory or overlapping in different ways that it's difficult, so difficult to untangle the problem that is just considered a wicked one because there's no immediate, clear, and obvious solution. 
So GMOs definitely fall into that category. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Let's go back to a professional development question, if you don't mind. For some students who could be interested in the type of postgrad work in your field or other related fields that you've done, can you talk about some of the skills that might be important to cultivate for people interested in postgrad programs um, or applied research of the kind that you've done in Peru or Chile or Mexico? I think first and foremost, language, and I think it's a good thing to develop language skills no matter what, but if you are able to speak Spanish well or speak whatever language it is that you're interested in, you know, that gives you a huge heads up. Sometimes, of course, if you're going to a different area and you don't speak the language, it's just difficult to to imagine a situation where you can, you know, where you can contribute as a as a researcher or you know, where you don't want to be a burden in any kind. So I'd say build up your language skills. And then the other part is that once you're, you know, once you, you don't need to be perfect either. It's not like you, you don't speak Spanish perfectly, so you can't go abroad. I would say when I, you know, I'm, I'm half Peruvian, but at the same time, I'm from Minnesota. And so it's always been an issue where I continually work on my, my Spanish as much as I can, but it's not perfect. It's not native Spanish. And so when I first went to uh, take on an internship in Peru, I had some of those questions too, like, you know, am I ready? Is, is this something that I can do? I don't want to like, you know, get this great grant and then go over there and be totally useless. But it's also the case that people are accepting of that. And I'm sure that if you put in the time and you work on your language skills that people are accepting, you'll get ahead. And it's great, you know, just to be there, you, well, you develop them a lot. Uh, the other part that I would say for me, in my case, I had done in, in my previous life as an economist, I had done a lot of, uh, I had taken a lot of econ courses. And so those helped me uh, in particular because I had a lot of classes or a lot of work with, st- uh, with stats. And so I was able to do like data management, run regressions, and this type of thing helps if you're looking to work with economists. So I would say if that's something that interests you, then definitely do that and work that up. That helps a lot. And But I think most importantly, it's the language part. And then the other part would be being proactive about it not being too shy, but rather like reaching out to organizations, sometimes just the idea of being able to have to have a scholar from a different place, especially if you have your own funding source, or if you're able to make ends meet, find a way to do that, that people will be really receptive. In my experience, they have been. And so I think that some of the the coolest and potentially most relevant and some of the best opportunities just come from putting yourself out there and seeing what happens. Moving on a little bit. Aside from academia, we know that you are an active musician, violin and guitar, and you're either a current or you have been a violin teacher. Basically, what is your take on having interests, you know, outside of your studies? What's the importance of that to you? Well, for me, I don't think I could live without it. I I always wonder, like, what is it that people do in their free time? (laughs) What is it that, that? yeah, (laughs) what's free time? But what is it that people do? And for me, it's always been, well, I play music and I'm thinking about it all the time and I'm practicing and doing things. And uh, so I need to do it. So it hasn't hasn't been a question for me. I haven't really struggled with that, with that ever. But I would say for the benefits of it, playing music, for example, is a really good way to connect with people in different places. So if you do find yourself in Peru or Chile or some other country and you, you, know, you want to make friends, you want to become a part of the community, well, music is a great medium, a great device for doing that. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then maybe the other part that I would say is that 
doing a PhD is a lot of work and it's really long, a lot, it's uh, probably a lot more work than you would imagine at the start. And I think that in order to maintain a certain degree of sanity and also to, you know, to continue your, your life as a reasonable human being, that it's good to have a number of interests on the side and, you know, it can be whatever you'd like. And in my case, it's been music that's really helped me. And yeah, it's, it's hard to like quantify or articulate exactly what the benefit of doing it that is. But at the same time, I'm just certain that I couldn't, I couldn't do my PhD without having that interest on, on the side. I was just about to say, um, it's funny that out of like all the professors and students we've talked to, it seems like the common thing is that I'm really good at this one thing, but that's not how you make friends, it turns out. So I, I do this other thing so people like me. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, what, like we've had a lot of music people, a lot of, um, a lot of bikers, some gardeners, some volunteer work. Yeah. yeah. Kind of funny. It's the Midwestern yeah. hobbies that you bike and you go outside and then you do something creative. We don't want to hold you too far over the set time that we had. We have like two real questions left. Are you okay with two more questions? Yeah. Yeah. It's a Friday. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you can be as brief as you want, but yeah. we wanted to ask you, you're the co-founder of the Twin Cities Front Yard Organic Gardeners Club, which is a nonprofit dedicated to the transformation of front lawns into productive spaces for growing healthy foods and native plants, which sounds fascinating. So how did that come about and what are the goals of that organization? So I have a friend who lives in St. Paul and his name is Quentin and he happens to have a giant front yard <laughs> and he's also a, a you know he's a, a community enthusiast I will say he's a community all-star he uh, and he's a gardener he grows all the time and we're friends he posts his things on Facebook and on next door and community pages all the time for sharing. And anyways, I come back from, from Peru after doing some research, I, I came back to Minnesota and the pandemic hit. And so I'm here and trying to figure out, you know, what, like everybody, like, what do we do now? How do you make sense of this, uh, this new time? And I'm talking with my friend Quentin and we decide, you know what, we should start a community group, especially now that um, and remember, at the, at the start of the pandemic, there were all of these food shortages. And so you would go to the store and at times they didn't, they just didn't have vegetables or the type of food that you were looking for just wouldn't be there. Uh, I started talking with my friend Quentin about trying to encourage people in our community to grow vegetables and fruits uh, in their gardens. And so we did that and we planned to use his garden space, his massive, and I think it's about probably a, a quarter acre front yard that he has and to use that for as a model as an example and to grow out different vegetables for the community in the pandemic well he brought over a large truck of compost and we started getting the front yard together and then he immediately received a letter in the mail from his city of Falcon Heights Minnesota and they said we regret to inform you that it is no longer allowed to grow vegetables in your front yard. And effective immediately, you will have to remove any vegetables that you've planted. Otherwise, you're at risk of being fined. And it was just that so out of this world that the idea that the city could, from one day to the next, outlaw growing vegetables in your front yard, especially during the pandemic, and especially when this project had such good 
intentions, such good motivations of sharing food with the community. And so what came out of this, uh, and we fought, uh, we fought against the city, went to city hall, spoke with all the city council members, et cetera, and we ended up losing. But what came out of it was that cities have a lot of power. They have a lot of authority to do things and to restrict potentially your access to food and the ways in which you can use some of your garden space. And that's in combination with really what's just a strange culture that we have in the United States of promoting a very particular type of front lawn, which has to be perfect, which has to be green grass, which uses a lot of chemicals, and which just isn't part of a, you know, a sustainable environment. And so the idea that we had after this experience was, well, let's put together an organization and let's work on finding out what cities are doing and working proactively with them to try to change their, their ordinances, their legal codes, to create a friendlier environment so that people can use their lawns in more productive ways. And so that's what we, that's what we do. That's what we're working on. And there's a long ways to go, but I think almost everybody who we've spoken to, once they sit down and they realize just like you know, how what, what this means, I think everybody's on board for people being able to use their lawn space to grow food. Yeah, it is always shocking. I I covered slash still cover as a reporter our own city council for a very long time. And it's always been so interesting to see the powers they do have, which work out great sometimes for like lowering fines for marijuana use, you know, how you treat your animals, um, making sure that, you know, school districts are, you know, treating teachers like, well, all those kinds of things, honoring nurses, but they can also do some really weird stuff that just like slips through the cracks. But it's nice to see that it's more socially acceptable now to be using like your front yard and your backyard is like giant green green spaces. Yeah, exactly. I think the movement that needs to happen now is to move beyond just kind of growing um, mostly flowers and native plants in front yards, which is great. That's awesome. And I, I would like to see more people growing actual like vegetables and fruits and things that really, you know, that kind of pushes our understanding of what the front lawn is, what it what it is and what it should be. And so some people are doing that, but every now and then I've seen people, for example, who have grown corn in their front yard. And, uh, you know, I just chuckled when I said it because it just sounds outrageous, but it, maybe it's not that outrageous to grow corn in your front yard. I don't know. I love that. That's my, that's my dream is to have a little plot where I just grow some peppers and tomatoes and such, but that's my Midwestern uh, background. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So let's just wrap up with a fun question. That's very close to my heart because I'm also a musician. You're a musician. Where are the places you like to go to listen to live music in Madison? Yeah. So it's been a while since I've been in Madison and I know that the scene has changed, so I'm not able to speak with perfect conviction about this, but I think that some of my favorite places, for example, I like The Brink. The Brink seems like they bring in a lot of really good artists. And I think more than places, sometimes I follow particular musicians or groups and then just follow them around to wherever it is that they're going. But there's one group that I really like. I hope they're still around. It's called Golpe Tierra, and they, they play Peruvian music. And yeah, there's a, there's a great, uh, really a, a Peruvian community in Madison and they really turn out. And so there'll be some, some good music with them wherever they're going. There's also a group that I haven't, I haven't seen uh, live yet, but I, I really want to. It's a, a guy and his wife. They're called Harmonious Wall and they play like jazz swing, gypsy jazz style music. And I think they're actually playing at, at the brink uh, sometime in February. And so I follow them. Uh, other than that, I used to go to the Cardinal for Salsa Night. 
And I'm not sure that they're around any longer. I think that they've changed. I'm not sure where the salsa night is, but that's really cool. And I know throughout, maybe the other one that I'm curious about is that they have the new music center at Madison, the new building that's been created. And so I imagine that they have a concert hall there and that they're going to have more like performances or kind of easy engagement to get out and to see students perform or kind of like younger groups. I think that would be really cool. But again, that's just, that's kind of a, I'm not sure exactly what's, what's there for the moment. <laughs> just so you know, when you come back to Madison, Salsa Night is now at Rabinia Courtyard and Golpetira oh, wow. does still exist. Oh, sweet. Oh, awesome. <laughs> can I ask what, what, um, cause you said you're a musician. Can I ask what, what you play or what you perform or what, what you do? Oh, I'm a cellist. So I mostly do classical music, but all of my friends are in the jazz program. And so I follow them around to all the performances that they do throughout the year. They perform at Cafe Coda a lot, and I know they have a lot of Latin music there too. So, yeah, that I think that place had just been uh, starting up the last time I was living full time in Madison, and uh, it seemed like they, yeah, it seemed like they were doing a great job of bringing in musicians just about every night. So, yeah, I'm excited to check that out. Yes, definitely do. Well, we don't want to keep you any longer here. We appreciate the time that you gave us today. And we would love to talk to you again at some point about more of the research that you're doing. And once you get into more teaching here in the school year. But thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.